Welcome to Drilling Deep. I am your host, John Kingston. Drilling Deep is the podcast here at Freightways where we talk about oil and the fact that you need to drill for oil to get it. That's why we call the podcast Drilling Deep. We also have a guest of the week, and this week it's Michael Lemmix. He's an assistant professor at the University of Houston downtown. He's also a former truck driver, and he studies workforce trends and the psychology that drives workers. What are his views on what's going on with drivers in Canada, and what does he say, what does he say about the state of the drivers today? He's going to be here in a few minutes. Let's talk about diesel. Lots to talk about. The U.S. right now is likely consuming more diesel than it has in its entire history. Think about that. Okay, it's a bold statement, but here's why I say it. The Energy Information Administration comes out every Wednesday with its weekly statistical report. Its numbers aren't perfect. A lot of the data is the actual counting of barrels, but it's got a lot of modeling in it also. One of the categories it reports is called product supply. It's essentially a demand figure. It doesn't report a figure for diesel per se, but it does report a figure for distillates. Diesel is a distillate. So is jet fuel. But the consumption of jet is not in the EIA's distillate figure. It's reported separately. So without jet in the number, it really becomes a report on diesel consumption as well as heating oil. Those used to be really different products, diesel and heating oil, the way they were uh, the manufacturer, the specifications. But as environmental regulations on both of them tightened, they became far more similar. So it is a figure that if the U.S. Northeast has a really cold winter, it can send that number higher. I say the Northeast because most of the rest of the country heats its homes with natural gas or propane. Heating oil is a distinctly Northeast U.S. product. As a result, yes, it is possible that the numbers reported in recent weeks have been skewed by what was a pretty cold January. But it is not enough for me to stop, for, to stop me from making this declaration. Diesel consumption in the U.S. is probably at an all-time high. In the, last US, in the last four weeks, U.S. average distillate consumption was 4.5 million barrels per day. It got to that level, that average, that, that four-week average. It got there because in the last two weeks of January, it was between 4.65 million barrels a day and 4.75 million barrels per day. If you don't know what that, those numbers mean and how significant they are, here's what I can tell you. The January 21st figure of around 4.75 million barrels per day is the second largest one-week figure ever. It was topped only once back in 2018, and that number from four years ago looks a little bit suspicious because there are no other figures on either side of it to indicate that the U.S. was consuming that much diesel. So I want to throw that out. So the recent January 21st figure then was followed by one of the highest weekly numbers ever, that 4.65 million barrels per day. That means to me that that 4.75 number does not look like a fluke. The 4.5 million barrel per day average for the last four weeks contrasts with full 2019 consumption of just over 4 million barrels per day. So you can see we are in uncharted territory. And of course, I use 2019 as a lot of economic models are doing because it's the last year that had no impact from the, the pandemic. Here's the bad news. U.S. refineries are not stepping up to make enough product. Utilization at U.S. refineries last week was 85.3%. For the second week of February, that number is not extremely low, but it isn't high either. There is a concern here that refineries are already starting to go into spring maintenance. And while that maintenance is certainly necessary, it is a little bit early for it. Right now, the market needs more product and U.S. refineries aren't producing enough of it. We talked last week about inventories as measured by day's cover. That's the number that you get by dividing daily consumption into total inventories. For distillates, it was at the extremely low level of 26.7 days once again last week. Same number as the prior week. So it didn't change from week to week. 
The one piece of good news I can say for consumers is that the price of diesel on the CME Commodity Exchange did take some significant moves downward both Tuesday and Thursday of this week. As I record this, it looks like ULSD is going to be down about 13 cents per gallon from its most recent high. Those moves do take time to make it to the pump if they ever make it at all. If the market reverses and heads higher, it'll wipe those gains out in terms of impact on retail prices. But still, I would say that the, the downward move might be considered a sign that prices have hit a high, except for the inconvenient fact that between low inventories, low refining rates, and rip-roaring consumption, the case for lower prices is pretty weak. We are going to bring in our guest of the week here on Drilling Deep, as we usually do. Not as we usually do, as we always do. Uh, after a few minutes, after I riff on about oil, for those in the trucking business, it's really been pretty notable just about how much news attention, media attention has been paid to the field in recent months. It's really been the last two years when you think about the early focus on how truckers were keeping our shelves stocked during the first months of the pandemic, the squeeze on drivers, that story inevitably came up, and most recently, the convoys of truckers who block crossings between Canada and the U.S. and fill the streets of Ottawa, which is the capital of Canada. Michael Lemke is an assistant professor at the University of Houston downtown in its social sciences department. We had him on Drilling Deep more than a year ago to talk about how drivers were trying to stay healthy during the pandemic. And when I went back and read his description of some of the things he has studied, and I looked back on that on that podcast from a while back, I thought he'd be a great guest to have back and talk about some of the issues that he thought might have driven Canadian drivers to do what they did. Well, you didn't see the same thing in the U.S. Let's note also that Michael is not just an academic on this issue. He is a Ph.D., but he is also a former truck driver. So his perspective is shaped by that as well. Michael, welcome back to Drilling Deep. Thanks for having me again. So. I'll just ask a really broad-based question to start. Uh, could you have ever seen this coming? Uh, the whole Canadian, well, I don't know, we'll call it a blockade, blockade protest, whatever, um, that has gripped several crossings, including, of course, the Ambassador Bridge and downtown streets of Ottawa in a country known for its niceness. You know, I think I could have seen it coming, but not in this specific form. You know, the political climate changed so much in the last five years or so. And if you look at the way these protests have manifested, they've been a little bit surprising. So I think in, in that form, no, but I, I could have seen potentially drivers reaching a point where they start to actually take social action. So if you follow, you know, I, I know definitely more the American trucking sector. Um, if you follow the trucking industry, especially since deregulation, mostly we see that the work of truckers has become worse and worse and worse. Worse pay, harder hours, fewer supports on the road. Um, even something as simple as parking nowadays seems to be this very difficult issue to solve. So I could have seen truckers eventually reaching a breaking point and saying, we need to do something because the way things are going, it's not working for us. But, you know, it, it comes though after a year or so in which driver pay has been really at record levels. Uh, everybody's got lots of work. You know, you think back, you know, the first few weeks of the pandemic, let's say in March of 2020, were pretty bountiful, and then everything collapsed. And by the end of April, you had them blaming the brokers, and uh, the TIA were putting out statements defending the brokers. And you know, the past year, one thing I've heard is some companies saying uh, one of the biggest problems is that let's say by September, October, a lot of drivers made so much money that they could just stay home the rest of the year. They'd hit their targets, and they could cover the payments on their trucks. And yet, you have this massive protest that that seems to be sort of a dissonant. They're not together. Yeah, so I think that the issue of pay and the issue of 
the of COVID and, and vaccines are a little bit different. Um, I think that these drivers, from what I've read, I think like 85% of Canadian truckers are vaccinated, fully vaccinated. They're ready to go. Um, and the numbers I've seen for the number of truckers in terms of their overall representation of the tr uh, Canadian trucking sector are relatively low. So I think this is more sort of a fringe protest. And if you read, like, it also seems sort of disjointed. You have different people protesting that want sort of different things. So I think that this specific protest is is maybe not reflective of the overall trucking industry, but I think it could also be that some of those drivers involved and then all those other drivers who don't have a specific voice in the protest or doing their thing have been, I mean, I've talked about this in the past and I believe on here as well. Go back to the beginning of the pandemic. You had drivers who um, the policies would literally shut businesses down that they relied on for basic necessities. They couldn't go into a, a warehouse and use a restroom. You had... Um, Back when the vaccine started coming out and, you know, not all drivers wanted one, but they were not first in line to get them, even though they were relied on to basically keep us going during the pandemic. Um, so I think that these protests for some drivers might be sort of a, a manifestation of even since the beginning of the pandemic or even before that uh, frustration building up. And they might be saying, you know, this is we've dealt with a lot. We've, we've sacrificed to keep the country going. And now we. We're being forced to do something that we don't want to do, and we need to have our voices finally heard. Yeah, it, it's kind of a strange, there might be a, a dichotomy here. As I mentioned, the pay is really at record levels. Uh, I, I get the sense, and I, I don't know if you agree with me, that there is more sort of broad societal understanding and acceptance of this field. They're starting to realize without them, you know, we're really, really screwed. And at the same time, a lot of the conditions, as you mentioned, are terrible. Uh, we, we just ran a story within the last two weeks about the inability of truckers to find a place to use a restroom. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's like never been better, but in some ways never been worse, too. Absolutely. And, you know, like I said, it's really been interesting to read about this and, and follow it because, again, there's so it's just like when any protest, you have one side kind of demonizing the protesters, the other side seeing them as freedom fighters. And even that's been sort of the story here in the U.S. But I think that it, just in general, drivers, it's its not a good profession. There's a lot of frustration. You know, we could start going back to uh, uh, things like non-detention pay. Um, if you break down and, and other researchers have broken down driver pay, you know, looking at like how much are they, you know, you look at their salary, their overall income, but like what kind of hours are they putting in? And it's really not that high. And it's gotten better with the current uh, climate, but I think drivers realize that that's sort of a short-term thing and it's probably not going to stay that way. Um, so I think that what we need to really consider is what has got us to this point. And even more importantly, how can we make sure that this doesn't become a regular thing? How can we try to improve life for drivers now that we know how important they are so that they can demonstrate their freedoms in ways that aren't as drastic? Um, because the bottom line is that we rely on them and you know, there's no reason to think that drivers could not do the same thing in the United States. Yeah. I, are you surprised that it hasn't happened in the U.S.? I know there was talk last week that they were going to show up at the White House uh, on the night of the Super Bowl. Well, the Super Bowl has come and gone and there wasn't any protest. Uh, why no spark in the U.S. to have something similar? I think that some of this, uh, it's sort of like they observe what's going on and then it enables other people to take bolder actions. And I wonder if some of this, like, Maybe they saw what happened on January 6th here in the U.S. and they said, hey, we can go down to the Capitol and 
and try to make our point heard that way. So I think there's no reason to think that American drivers wouldn't see this. And, you know, there's a lot of American drivers. And and one thing that that I don't know is if these are company drivers participating or if these are more owner operators and independent drivers since they have their own equipment. Um, but I think that um, it this could be a spark for American drivers to say, you know what, we can do the same thing. Um, so yeah, I think it's important to address yeah. these kind of issues before we start having these really dramatic protests because it's not good for anybody. Yeah, just because it hasn't yet hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen. So that's for certain. Uh, let me ask you, you know, these things are so complicated. Let's take the issue of parking. I mean, it's easy to say the federal government should do more to help parking, but let's, you know, most parking spots are either coming at state rest stops or in the private sector, like at a place like Love's. Um, and so the, the, the quick wins are tough to see. You know, what can you do quickly to make things better for, uh, for truckers? What are some of the easiest changes that you might see? And even, even conceding that the easy changes are hard, too. Yeah. You know, so I think that that is a key question. And I think the biggest challenge from what I see is that, you know, if you let's say, you know, I come from like a public health kind of perspective. And, you know, the one thing you see that is so different for truck drivers is that, OK, well, you have a typical community. You can, you know, work on building grocery stores. You can work on um, these very specific place based things that can that can help that community because they're sort of they're not mobile like drivers are. But for a driver, okay, well, let's say you build a handful of truck stops. You know, I know TA in the past has done their workout rooms, for example. They try to introduce healthier food options. But drivers are so mobile, it's very hard to sort of figure out how to distribute resources so drivers can have regular access to them. To me, I see that as the biggest barrier. Um, and, you know, for drivers, like they're not, they just want parking. They feel like they deserve it. They want to see action. So, t- so to them, maybe they don't necessarily think about the complications. They just think about, well, there's nothing being done. This is ridiculous. We, we, we have laws that say we have to sleep. We should be given a place to do it. And in a lot of companies, of course, they'll say you can't park on, you know, the shoulder of an exit. So that even further narrows on the option. So I think that some sort of action should be taken. And I think the parking issue to me is an easier one to tackle because it really is about allocating land um, for uh, driver parking. Now, of course, there might be issues with security and those kinds of things potentially, um, but I think that's a big part of it. And I think another factor, and this goes back to my driving days, I wouldn't want to park in places that I didn't feel safe. And there are certain rest areas, you know, for example, parking at a truck stop, there are certain ones where I would just avoid them. And I could list some of those. If <laughs> I'm sure other drivers probably know what I'm talking about. Um, but so I think the parking is something that has to be done in places where drivers would actually want to park, where they would feel safe. Um, but, you know, that to me, that's the easier of the problems to, to deal with. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, there's no simple solution necessarily, but you know, what, what, at least in my observations, you've seen truck parking be part of like this political game in trying to pass this transportation bill and, and infrastructure bill. Um, and so I think that um, drivers are cynical about that kind of stuff. They, they just, they feel like they, they deserve to have a safe place to park. They don't want to see that be part of a political sideshow. Um, and so I think that action should be taken. Um, even as a side bill, whatever the political process is to, to make that happen. And to me, that's maybe a first step. Of course, you know, the, you wouldn't even think this, but the issue of federalism comes up when you're talking about parking, because you can have sort of this great national desire to add more parking spots, and they decide they want to build a new parking, a new truck stop or something in Podunk, 
you know, any state um, USA. And the, the city council of Podunk says no. And really, when you get to that point, there is almost nothing the federal government can do. Or at least I don't think so. Do you feel otherwise? Yeah, you know, I would hope that the local leaders would would understand how important it is. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, depending on what the nature of that truck parking is, I don't know if it would be a NIMBY concern or, or not. That's a really good question. Um, but drivers mostly need access off major interstates. Um, and you know, hopefully they would be convinced through safety data that they're protecting their the well-being of their own citizens by keeping sleepy drivers off the road. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I'm not a, a political scientist. I'm not sure exactly how some of those uh, federal versus state and local rights and, and laws really function. But I would hope, and you know, I've talked about this in the past with you as well. I would hope that there's an ability left for p- politicians to come together and address issues in a bipartisan way um, and understand that this is a problem that affects everybody. Yeah, so let's talk a little about it. you. You study the psychology of drivers. You study the psychology of, I think, the entire transportation chain. At least that's what your your biography on your uh, uh, on your webpage says. Um, you kind of hinted before that it, money's not enough to make these people happy. Uh, and what do you think is the the mental state of drivers today as as they're coming out of the pandemic? You, you touched on this before, but maybe you can kind of sum up a little more. Sure. You know, so I think that there's sort of an endemic challenge in in addressing driver well-being, which is the fact that by nature, and if we're talking about long haul truck drivers, they have to be away from home. There's really no no way to resolve that. That's part of the job. So I think the big challenge is trying to create supports for drivers who are basically socially isolated for, for often weeks or even months at a time. And I think that that goes back to some of the challenges I talked about before with you want to provide resources, but how do you do it when you have this highly mobile driver population? Um, and this is really something that if you look at a lot of those key things you, that people need to basically survive, um, if you talk about, you know, obviously, you know, food access, physical activity access, it can be extended to basic healthcare access on the road or even mental health care access on the road. So those are things that there's just huge gaps in driver support for these issues. Um, and so I think coming away from the pandemic, um, I think there's maybe positives. I think people hopefully view drivers a little bit differently than they did before. And they were obviously just kind of flying under the radar. Um, they weren't really acknowledged for, for how critical they are. And there's been how many years of stigmatization of drivers as well? There's sort of these these vicious sometimes stereotypes about them. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping that coming away from the pandemic, drivers feel a little more appreciated. But at the same time, I think that there's been lip service from what I've seen, um, acknowledging drivers' uh, contributions. But as far as actually, um, again, doing things to help them, um, they've been, like I said, at the short stick of the different COVID policies. Um, so I think that there, there's new frustrations that they didn't have before. Um, and so I think that's where we're currently at. Um, and I'm hoping that all that's happened, you know, whenever there's a tragic event like the pandemic, there's going to be good and bad, right? There's good, good and bad takeaways. And I'm hoping that one will be finally some momentum um, not only among policymakers, but among the general public to finally say, we need these guys. We need to do things to make sure that they're doing okay. We need to do stuff to make sure that they're going to stay on the road because 
it's inevitable that be, there'll be another pandemic. It's just a question of when, and we need them. We need to start improving their health and well-being and making the job a, a, a more desirable job, job for people to see in beginning now. Well, given that, do you think what happened in Canada has hurt the public perception of truckers that maybe you had all these gains through much of the pandemic uh, in regards to that perception, that public perception improving? Did it take a couple of steps back? Wow, that's a great question. You know, I think it probably did. Well, I think it completely depends on the side of the aisle that you're on, because if you're on the left, you're probably reading, you know, CNN, for example, and the way that they portray the protests will be completely different from the way that Fox News will. So I think what it probably did is further polarize people who had an initial, um, uh, you know, a, a current more left or right political view. Um, so I think that that's probably the biggest impact, but also the idea that it might scare people to say, well, if this happens here, um, we, you know, obviously people don't want that. Um, so I think that the biggest takeaway is, is might be the fact that drivers can take action. Um, and now if we debate the pros and cons of the way that dri Canadian drivers have done it, that may be a separate issue. But I think as Americans, we can all sort of support, in general, political action, protesting. That's part of our, our foundation as a nation. And I'm hoping that the, the main takeaway will be that drivers have political power they could potentially wield and that will motivate um, policies that will help them moving forward. Um, I, I want to come back to a point that I made earlier, which uh, you know, heard this a lot, that people, a lot of drivers have a target of what they want to make in a year. And the date at which they're making that has been moving up. <laughs> it's it certainly yeah. moved up in 2021 relative to 2020. And that they're taking, they're just exchange, you know, classic economic model of exchanging uh, uh, wages for leisure. And that they have, many of them have been very willing to exchange uh, wages for leisure. Are you surprised at that? Or are you surprised that maybe there aren't more of them chasing these incredible rates that, you know, you stick a lot of money in the bank and it'll tide you through the next downturn. Yeah. You know, that's a really good question. I think that dry, I mean, the, the dr trucking profession is, is very difficult to do long-term, I think for a lot of people. Now that will depend, I think on your personality type. Some people prefer to be on the road alone, but for a lot of people, you know, they're having to sacrifice being away from family and friends. So I think, the thought process might be, you know, this is a, one of the few times that I'm making good money and I want to be home for Christmas. I want to be home to see my family because, you know, I don't think this will stay this way. You know, it's, you know, driver shortage, which has been debated and publicized. But the idea is that this might be one of the few times when they can really make that money. And to them, like, I'm tired of sacrificing to be on the road. I'm going to take advantage of this money and I'm going to enjoy my life um, and see my family. Are you surprised though that they seem to have gone that way, or did you would you think it would have been? I hate to say money grab. That sounds sort of evil, almost, you know. But that it would be a, a viewed as a, a very lucrative time that may not come around again for a while. I think it would depend on the driver. Um, I think for like a younger driver, or the, if a driver has certain goals, like they they're trying to save up for something specific. I know when I started driving, I was you know twenty one, the youngest you could legally be and drive interstate in the U.S. And for me, I was like, you know, hey, I could. If I was making that money, I would stay on the road because I didn't have family to get back to. I didn't have friends. I think we often look at these issues in a very sort of aggregate manner. And so I think in order to really understand that, we'd have to break it down and see if there's like differences in who, what drivers are doing what. 
And my take would be that younger drivers or drivers of new families might be more likely to want to take advantage. But as a whole, the more seasoned, experienced drivers are taking this as an opportunity to live their life, which they don't typically get to do. I still remember kind of an informal poll that somebody put on a trucking focused Facebook group. What was the longest amount of time you stayed out on the road? What, what do you think was the, I mean, I, I didn't see every single response, but what do you think was the longest least that you might've seen? Well, the longest could be almost indefinite. I mean, some, from what I understand, some drivers, like they, they don't really, I mean, they just stay on the road. They, they maybe don't have a family. They kind of live in their trucks in a way. So I would imagine some drivers don't really go home, but I would imagine sort of the average would be like a couple months would be my guess. But yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, six months was the longest answer that I had seen. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's that comes down to the driver though. Some some drive and this is something, you know, when I was driving, I would hear drivers talk and they some of them are married, but they're like, I want to stay away from my wife <laughs> on the road. You know what, it's Michael? Like, why don't we save that for the next podcast? Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Uh, we want to thank Michael Lemke for joining us today here on Drilling Deep to share his views on drivers, which he, of which he used to be one. Michael is an assistant professor at the University of Houston downtown in the social sciences department. We're going to have you back, Michael, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Uh, you have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freightcast family of podcasts from Freightwaves. You can find us on all of the leading podcast platforms. I've been your host for today, John Kingston. And please join us again. 